may be seated. Well, today we're going to look at the 121st Psalm. And uh, this week I had an interesting thing happen. Well, we've had lots of interesting things happen, actually. It's been kind of a big week heading into next week. This week I, I posted something on Facebook. Uh, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but, but a friend of mine posted a response to it. <clears throat> he said, why do you always post things on Facebook that I want to click like on, but immediately am convicted that the post applies to me? Right? Sometimes we share these things kind of that are, are speaking to some of the, the failings we have as humans to follow Christ Jesus faithfully. And uh, he, he felt a conviction in that. And I responded to him very honestly, actually. I hear you, brother. Believe me, most of my preaching is directed first at myself. And oftentimes, the best preaching will be that preaching which the preacher is preaching to himself. And this week, perhaps more than most weeks, it was uh, as I prepared for this sermon, I found that I was preaching to myself. I was really in need of this message, not just to give, but to receive. See, this, this upcoming week, we're taking Jack off to college. It's a day we've long looked forward to, and yet we reach it with a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of apprehension, a, a lot of excitement, and a little bit of worry, and all these things mixed together. And so this message in the 121st Psalm, I think, is, is a helpful message for me and, and for Aaron as we send him off. It's, I hope, a helpful message for him as he goes off, but, but really it should be a helpful message for all of us because even if we're not sending a child off to college some five hours away as he still undergoes chemotherapy for leukemia, we're, we're all facing fears and difficulties in life, aren't we? We're, we're all facing doubts and worries, and if we have even a, a modicum of, of self-awareness, there must be times of feeling guilt and inadequacy in our lives. And in light of all these, we, we turn to God's word. We turn to God's word, the 121st Psalm, and see what he has to say to us. But first, let's ask him to prepare our hearts that we might hear his voice. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we ask indeed that you would speak clearly to us. Speak not just to our felt needs, but more importantly, speak to our deepest needs. Speak to the needs that we truly have, that, that we cannot take care of ourselves. Those needs that only you can fill. Speak to us today. And give us ears to hear. Prepare our hearts that it might, they might be fertile soil for your word to be planted in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here as I read the 121st Psalm, this is the inspired word of God. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? 
The help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, back in the 1960s, many of you probably remember this. Some of you don't. Uh, but the Beatles famously sang a song called Help. The song opened, Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. And, and it was a wildly popular song in that day, and still to this day is a popular, well-known song. It's a song that I think strikes a chord within us. Because we all have had needs, we all realize times where we need help. It's interesting, the Beatles had another song just a couple years later that, that was a little bit more optimistic, I guess. They, they, they sang, I get by with a little help from my friends. And indeed, it's good to have friends that will help you out. It's good to have friends. I've often said, I don't want to own a pickup truck, but I sure want to have friends who do, right? I don't want to own a swimming pool, but it's good to have friends who do. We want to have friends that can help us out with things. We want to have friends that can take care of our needs or at least help us with them. This is a universal truth. And in Christ Jesus, it is a wonderful truth that God is our friend. That's what Jesus said. He said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friend. And so we have the best friend to help us out in times of trouble, in times of need. We see that he is a friend who can provide help that is powerful. We see that he is a, a friend who is alert and aware. We see that he is a friend who is nearby. All these we see in the 121st Psalm. First of all, we, we see this situation, this problem is given at the very beginning. A song of ascents, it reads at the beginning. And there, there are 15 psalms that are listed as such. They're actually Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. This list of, of psalms that are songs of ascents. They, they, are, they are given specifically for pilgrims as they are traveling to Jerusalem, as they're heading to Jerusalem for religious festivals, often the celebration of the Passover or, or sometimes some other re religious religious festival, and, and they're, they're said to go up to Jerusalem. As they approach Jerusalem, they'd see 
the temple mount where the, the temple is up. They were said to go up to the temple. I think how we might say we go up north, right? In, in the summertime, we, we head up north in Michigan. It's similar type of, of language, this idea of going up. And so this idea of, of going up, these songs of ascent were specifically for these pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem, as they were headed there to worship God. And this one psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills as I am approaching Jerusalem. And I ask myself this question, from where does my help come? It's an interesting question. It's a question that we all ask at times, I think, because, because we, we know the truth, we have faith, we trust God, and yet our faith sometimes wavers. And so as we approach hills that are full of trouble, hills that require our protection, hills that require a strength, we see hills such as the holiness of God where the Temple Mount was the resting place of God and we're caused to think of how holy he is and we realize that we don't have that holiness ourselves. We are left to say, where does our help come from? Some commentators suggest that the, the thrust of the psalm is to say that, that the psalmist is looking to the hills and thinking that that is from where his help comes. I, after all, hills are kind of a strategic stronghold, right? You know, as a kid, if you ever played the game King of the Hill, right? You know, and the way the game worked is is whoever was king of the hill was the guy who got to be up on top of the hill, and everybody tried to get up to the top of the hill and, and knock him off the hill. And, and, you know, it was easier to stay on top than to get to the top, right? Because it's a more strategic place. Most ancient cities were built that way. If you go to ancient cities, oftentimes you'll find a big, a big citadel or a big, a big fortress on top of a main hill in the city, right? Because that was the center of the city there. there their headquarters, where they protected the city from. It, it makes sense. But, but the impetus of this psalm is actually, I think, headed in a different direction. It's not looking for uh, what the most strategic, man-made way to find help is. The psalmist is ultimately landing on the fact that in times of trouble, in times of doubt, in times of worry, in times of Fear, what we need most is not a, a strategic plan. What we need most is God. We need his protection, his strength, his holiness. And so that is where he lands in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord. He doesn't just refer to any old lowercase g God. No, he refers specifically to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of God's people, the one of whom it was said in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's the psalm that Martin Luther rewrote as our opening hymn today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he knew that God was a great place to go to for refuge, to go to for help, to go to for security, both in terms of, of our physical fears, but even those spiritual fears we have, 
those doubts, those lies of Satan that creep into our lives. Sometimes it's when we're facing trials and temptations and difficulties and Satan will whisper in our ear, you aren't loved. You aren't worthy of God's love. You aren't worthy of him because consider all the the sins that you commit. Consider the things that you do, all the failures that you have, have experienced. But God is a mighty fortress that we can rush back to and know his loving protection. For he is powerful. That's really the first area that, that we see here. How can we see his power in this passage? Well, it says... My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It harkens back to the very opening verses of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And you know what? There was light. He just said it and it was done and then genesis goes on to tell us from there that's how he created all the world he spoke and it was there that's that's power that's what real power is we we create things sometimes right we we might build things i mean let's face it flint was pretty much built upon the idea of building things right specifically automobiles right but but when automobiles were built it wasn't quite so easy as somebody just saying, let there be a Buick. And there was a Buick. No, it's not that simple, is it? There's a lot of work that goes into it, a lot of hard work. A lot of people had to use a lot of skills and a lot of talents. They had to build machines and they had to do all these different things. And, and the skills they had weren't even things that they had kind of created themselves. They had been gifted with those skills. and and. It, it required a bunch of pre-existing materials, right? You, even if you had the most skilled people in the world, if they didn't have anything to build the vehicles with, well, then they couldn't have built the vehicles. But God builds in another way. He just speaks. And then out of nothing, by his word, things leap into existence. That's power. If you can do that, you can really do anything, can't you? There's, there's nothing that can stop you. Your power is a very helpful thing at that point. And, and throughout the scriptures, really, God is referred to as a help to his people because of this power that he has. Psalm 22, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Psalm 40, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Psalm 70, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and deliverer. Psalm 94, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. But if we are his people, then he is our help. Our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. We don't always live like this, though, do we? We we sometimes exhibit worry and fear as part of our human condition. And it's interesting, I think, in Psalm 121 to see that the first two verses are spoken in the first person, right? I and my. It's a person saying, I, I this I and my. 
but I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And, and I think that there's perhaps even a hint of doubt in that self-reminder. Have you ever been there, you know, where, where you're walking down a dark street at night by yourself maybe, and you're saying, I'm not scared, I'm not scared, I'm not scared, I'm not scared, right? Trying to convince yourself almost, right? I think there's a sense of that perhaps in here because, because there's a second voice that speaks into this psalm here after those first two verses, right? Those first two verses where, where he's reminding himself of what he believes. He's saying, my help comes from the Lord. And yet, yet I think there's some doubt. It's kind of like the man who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? That's how life is for the Christian. We, we should be honest about that. At, at times, though we trust in Jesus, at times we, we struggle to trust in Jesus. It's really where most of us are most of the time. And, and now in verse 3, though, of this psalm comes another voice, this other voice that, that comes in speaking to that first person, a voice of wisdom, a voice of encouragement, a voice that is able to speak out of the riches of his personal experience of God's power, but also of God's awareness and alertness. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this passage. He says, the consoling truth must be repeated. It is too rich to be dismissed in a single line. It were well if we always imitated the sweet singer and would dwell a little upon a choice doctrine, sucking honey from it. So true. You see, he says that... that that the Lord will not slumber. And then he says it again, the Lord will neither slumber nor sleep. It's a reality that, that we can trust in God, contrary to the other gods who are, who are portrayed as being capricious or, or uncaring and oftentimes even asleep. Yahweh does not sleep. Now this is not so much talking about naps per se although that's true god does not need to take a nap i need naps i need naps from time to time i get tired and i just need to go to sleep but what it's talking about more is just the awareness that we have because when i do sleep i'm unaware of what's going on right what it's saying is god is never unaware that's the point it's making. It's, it's kind of metaphorical language, idiomatic language, right? We say the same type of thing. He, he was asleep at the wheel when that happened, right? Is an idiomatic phrase that we have. We're not saying he really was asleep. We're just saying that he wasn't paying attention to what he should have been paying attention to. But that is never the case with God. He is never asleep at the wheel. That might be a modern saying of what this verse 3 and verse 4 say. He is alert. He is always ready to help. He's aware of what's going on, no matter what it seems like. I think of the story of Jesus, who is in a boat with his disciples. He literally was physically asleep, right? He was asleep in the boat as a storm rose up around them, and, and the waves were crashing upon the boat, and they became worried as the winds blew stronger and stronger, and their little boat is being tossed about, and they, they don't know what they're going to do, and they're trying to bail water out because they're going to sink, and there is Jesus just sleeping in the boat, and finally they say, Jesus, don't you care? 
he wakes up and says, you of little faith. With a word again, he says to the wind and waves, peace, be still. And all of a sudden the lake is placid. The winds are gone. The waves have disappeared. And it is smooth sailing. You see, even as Jesus was asleep in the boat, he was in control of the situation. They, they were rushing about, doing everything they could, getting all worked up, all worried, all concerned. And, and they didn't know what was going to happen. And Jesus, even as he slept, was in control. He had it all in the palm of his hand. There was nothing that was getting by him. Sometimes in our life, it seems like Jesus is asleep at the wheel, doesn't it? Right? Some trials come up in your life, some difficulties, some problems, illness, medical difficulties, financial troubles, job problems, family relationships, all kinds of difficulties, and And you just can't figure out what it is that God is doing. Jesus, why aren't you doing something? And he says, don't you worry. I've got this. Even if it looks like I don't. I've got this. I am keeping you in the palm of my hands. That's what he says here. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither neither sleep nor slumber. He he keeps you. He, He the word could actually be translated guards you. Right? The idea is he's, he's keeping us in his hands. We don't like the idea of being kept sometimes. You know, we, we want to be free. I don't want somebody to keep me. I want to be free. But, but it's good to be kept, isn't it? It is good to be kept if you're kept by one who, who loves you, one who cares for you. You'd much rather be kept by one who loves you and cares for you than thrown away by one who loves you and cares for you. He keeps us, he guards us, he protects us, he loves us. The phrase comes up again in verse 5, again in verse 7, this idea of being kept, being guarded. It's of the utmost importance to a pilgrim on his journey over long, arduous roads and dangerous territories like the hill countries that might be filled with roadside robbers around each turn. Part of the blessing of the Lord keeping us on our journey is not just that he is powerful and not just that he is aware, but he is nearby. He is nearby. The Lord is your keeper, verse 5 tells us. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Again, as I look to the commentators on this, many of them talked about sunstroke and dehydration and how those were very real dangers in the Middle East for somebody who was on a journey, a pilgrim, traveling along the roads, how they had to worry about these things, that, that they might become overheated and, and shade or a shadow was a very refreshing thing for them. We've all felt that before where we've been too hot in the summertime and, and just wanted some shade, right? If the sun would just go behind a cloud or if I could find a tree to be under, it would be refreshing. And the metaphor works there for sure, but I think there's something more important than that going on in these verses. For, for if the Lord truly is our shade so that the sun will not strike us by day or the moon by night, what he's saying is he is our, our shadow all the time. 
he must be nearby. He must be close by, right? Because it's possible, you know, as the sun is setting late in the, the day or as it's just rising early in the morning, that, that the long shadows of, of a tree far away perhaps could, could keep you out of the sunlight. But there are times of the day, in the middle of the day, where the only tree that will shadow shade you, that will provide a shadow for you, is the one that is right above you, right on top of you, right there with you. And that is how the Lord is. He is right there with us, always present, here to take care of us. We looked at it just moments ago when we looked at John 10 together, did we not? This picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, the one who is there with us. Jesus even talks about how being the good shepherd, if he notices that one of his sheep has gone off, he will go out after him. He will go find him and bring him back. He will not let you just wander away by yourself. He brings you back so that you might be near to him. You know, I, I didn't plan it this way. It turned out that this was in God's providence, as is often the case. I don't know if you've got the regular bulletin you'll see on the front. I don't know why they put these ducks or geese or whatever these are on the front. But uh, for John 10, 27, the verse says, I know them and they follow me. It's talking, it's Jesus talking there. He says that. He's talking about his sheep. They follow him. They are with him. He is with them. We see this in the 23rd Psalm, right? So very familiar its words. How the Lord provides for us and cares for us and is there with us even in the most terrible of times. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What does it say? You are with me. No matter where we go, he will be with us. And so we can have confidence in that. He is, he is powerful. That does us no good if he is not aware of our troubles and nearby to do something about it. He is powerful and aware. But that still does us no good if he's not nearby, right? He could know we have trouble and be powerful to do something about it. But he's so far away he can't accomplish anything. But we see here he is powerful, he is aware, and he is near. By. So the Lord will keep you, it says in verse 7, from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He's not saying we'll have no difficulty. He's not saying we'll have no hardship. He is not saying you will have no pain or sorrow. I love how one commentator put it. He says, to be kept from evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. You see, that's the idea. Jesus is there with us in the midst of those trials. And he can take care of us no matter what those trials are. He is there keeping your going out and your coming in. You see the idea that you're everything, right? You're going out when you go out and when you come in. You're doing one or the other, right? We go out to work and we come in from work. We go out on travels, we come in from travels. We go out to play and we come in from play. We go out to worship and we come in from worship. The idea is no matter what you do, no matter where you're going, he will always be with you. And 
These are incredibly encouraging words. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he says. Can we trust him, though? Yes, we can. And we know we can trust him because we've seen the lengths that he's gone to already. We've seen that he has loved us so very much that he laid down his life, right? Those words we read earlier from John 10. Nobody takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down for the sheep. If we are his sheep, he has laid down his life for us. And if he would do that, there is nothing he would not do. There is nothing he cannot do and there is nothing he would not do. What comfort we can have from that. And so even as he laid down his life and died on Calvary's cross, paying the penalty for our sins, his blood washing us clean from the filthiness of our trespasses, his clean, his blood cleansing us and freeing us and paying for our penalty. We can know that we are his. So, at the end, the point is, when we look up to the hills of fear, when we look to the hills of doubt, when we look to the hills of guilt and the hills of worry. Let us not let our eyes linger on those hills. Let them instead turn to another hill. Let them turn to the hill named Calvary upon which our Savior indeed shed his blood for us, on which he indeed proved his love for us, on which he laid down his life that he might take up ours. And as we Lift up our eyes to Calvary. Let us be sure of our Savior's infinite power, even over sin and death, of his infinite knowledge and experience of all of our problems, and of the fact that he came near and is near to us even now. And let us be assured that we can find our help in him. We don't need to be tossed about by winds and waves. Rather, we can find him to be our sure and steady anchor. I want to close with the words to uh, a modern hymn, as it were, written by Matt Boswell, Matt Papa. Call Christ the sure and steady anchor. Listen to these words. Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won. Deeper still, then, goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, oh, my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. 
I will hold fast the anchor. It will never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. As we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. And the calm shall be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would be our sure and steady anchor. Pray that you would be our help and our salvation. In the midst of doubt, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of guilt, in the midst of sickness and even death. May we hold fast to you even as we are confident you will hold fast to us. Keep us. Guard us. Save us, Lord Jesus.